0: This podcast covers a murder that occurred in 1992. It is a true story, and while I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, the opinions of the host and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. The credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law.
1: There was, amongst the homicide, there was another crime committed here. From very early on, I think they just figured that this was what it was at face value.
0: I think they did too.
1: I've poured over today, there is zero mention of anybody else having ever been there. Not another name is brought up, not another indication of of suspicion um, placed on anybody else.
0: I don't care what comes back, I will go to my grave. I do not believe that Ken shot him. I will never believe that. I just, I am, it bothers me because you can't put a period on this. There's still some concerns.
1: Just searched that car, they probably would have found that gun. Yeah. How I made that connection was his interview with her back in October of nineteen ninety-two, or the follow-up interview, she just briefly mentions her address. And when I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, this gun turned up in Georgia, is there any connection between those two in Georgia?
0: That's ballsy, though, to take a gun off of a crime scene.
1: That's what it goes back to for me, and that's one thing I've learned in this job. What I will say the rest of my life, people do people things.
0: Yeah. I rolled that around on my tongue for days. People do people things. It's perhaps one of the most profound truths that I've learned with respect to homicide investigations to date. People do people things. I will take this sentiment into every case I study because the lesson is very important. I can't count how many times I or others have followed a single piece of evidence down a rabbit hole to complete distraction, only to later learn that that thing might not have meant anything. Now, I'm not big on coincidences as a general rule, certainly not when talking about crime investigations, because every little thing needs to be considered. But what also needs to be considered is that there might be some of these people things littered among the actual facts of a case, things that, while they could draw back the curtain on how human nature works and how someone may think, they don't actually have any bearing on the case itself. Sometimes people do things that can't later be explained by any number of professionals who profile cases and prepare detailed analysis of every burp or fart that emanates from a perpetrator. Sometimes the reason it can't be explained is because there really is no explanation. The person who did it doesn't even really know why they did it. They just did it. I don't
1: think that, in in reading this, um... Reading the transcripts from the interviews, George didn't put a, a lot of heat on either him or his girlfriend at the time. They looked like very mundane, cordial, discussion-type interviews with people that were recorded.
0: Yeah, I have um, never read an, a single transcript of an interview that he did that was anything other than that. He seems very even-keeled and not very... And that's not to say that you can't ask those tough questions while you're being that way. And I
1: think, I think George probably, you know, he's in a, in a unique situation in that he he's a rural detective that handles a myriad of cases, everything from armed robberies to homicides. Yeah. It's not like George has three or four partners where, you know, he can rotate a guy in to be the bad cop for a right. while if he needs to. I think George understood... I've got to maintain relationships with these people and I have to keep them willing to talk to me because as you progress through your cases, you've got to circle back around and talk to people again. That's, if you bulldog yep. somebody, yep. they're not going to talk to you anymore.
0: That's exactly right. And he and and then you're always worried that they're going to say, okay, I want a lawyer. You know. So that sounds yeah. exactly right to me. That does sound
1: right. Uh, and I think in that respect, I think he's a very intelligent investigator. I think he's probably... I think George probably relies more on his ability to read people and to observe their reactions and their mannerisms.
0: Yep. You know what? I'm so glad you said that because I got a sense of him just like that throughout this. And when I was working with another girl on uh, Jeanette's case, she was always on his ass, always on his ass. And I kept saying, I don't think so. I mean, I really... I've always liked—I've only sat with him and talked to him once, but I've always got an indication that he was very even-keeled, very perceptive, and had a good attention for detail, and that he was just very steady and calm. I found him exactly like you're describing, so that sort of makes me feel good because that's how I perceived him, too, um, once I got the other reports. But this case does still bother me a little bit because that question is open, and because he was asking those questions, he wasn't asking those questions just so he could— you know, put closed on the file and close it. He must have had some question in his mind. Uh, what happened? You know.
1: Yeah, when I t- when I talked to him, uh, I was just I was just a young snot in college for criminal justice, and uh, I had a project. I had to interview somebody about a local crime.
0: Mm. Um,
1: and having grown up in the area, I knew that. <laughs> I knew that there was a plethora of, I mean, it's just a gold mine for cold cases, right. which are, to me, I mean, you can go out there and, and you can dig into any number of cases that are very simply solved because the relationships between people and heat of the moment and crimes of passion type things, yep. they're boring. Mm-hmm. As, as bad as that sounds, they're just boring. Yep. Um, and, I, and I liked the cold stuff, so I went down to george and uh i said hey i've got to do this project and i've got kind of a personal interest in one could i do the arnold case and he says well that one's still open he's like there's not a lot i'm going to be able to tell you about that so why don't we do something else he was it was just a general uh uh, redirection um so the guy i mean and and i think if i'm not mistaken and, and, and kathy had hinted at this a little when she talked to you george knew Arnold, and I have to think he probably knew Ken, too, because uh, these guys were just, they're local actors. Yep, it yep. is what it is. Yeah. Uh, I think George was aware of both of them. He probably knew enough about both of them that he was putting that all together.
0: Yeah. That sounds um, right. That does um, sound it, right. It was
1: weird to read, though, I, I'll tell you, uh, reading the the autopsy report from Arnold, um, just what he was wearing at the time. They were talking about how he had a, a gold earring with a diamond in his left ear. And I mean in 1992 oh. in, in in Ashton, Michigan, that <laughs> was uh, that was a statement right there.
0: Wow, that is. I would have never imagined I, I that. Have,
1: I, have, I don't I don't remember Arnold having having had an earring. Um but I know at the time when that started to become popular, I know what, what was said about people that were doing that. Uh, And it was not a good time to to try and make a fashion statement or be moderate.
0: Yeah, wait, that's true, huh? Was he that type of person that was like, I don't give a fuck what people think of me?
1: I think Arnold was exactly that guy.
0: (laughs) I'm going to do whatever Uh, I want. uh, So do you see that couple-hour time period between when he left Kathy, when she last saw him, and then uh, do you see him going over there and the two of them arguing for a while and it getting nasty? I
1: can't see the two of them having argued that long.
0: But we have no indication uh, I mean, he we, he went anywhere else, right? No, no indication he went anywhere else other than the fact that Kathy's adamant he didn't have as
1: much money in his wallet when he was found as as he did when he left the house. Uh, Arnold Arnold had cash on him. He had uh, oh, I think they said two fifties tucked in his wallet and uh, a couple of twenties and you know the the funeral home gave. The money that was in arnold's wallet back to kathy and she's adamant that he had more on him than that when
0: he went uh, down there i see
1: um so did arnold go somewhere else i it's very possible i mean the where they lived and where he was murdered is two miles at most separate them um so i don't know I, uh, what struck, I guess, what concerned Kathy, and, I, and I'd always heard this growing up, and it was confirmed in this report, is that when Arnold left, he didn't take his pipe with him. And that's when she knew something was wrong, because if he planned on being gone that long, he'd have taken his pipe.
0: Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Because, like, a cigarette smoker will always take their cigarettes with them wherever yep, they absolutely. go.
1: So and, and you know and that's the thing if Arnold were going down there with the intention of telling Ken Barney he had to leave uh, you know he'd have probably that that's not something you say oh, I'll be back in five minutes
0: yeah so, yeah
1: that's you know another one of those things the question lingers. Um, If he'd planned on being there, I, I, I would think if you're going to kick somebody out, that that's a long-term, you plan on a long-term visit.
0: Yeah, you're going to have to work up to that. You're not going to walk up and start screaming at him. You're going to get, no. especially if he hadn't really been hard-ass with him already. He's shown, like he was. <laughs> yeah, it's, he's shown a propensity for being a little bit nicer about the situation than he had to be to begin with. And even though he may have finally, this may have been the, okay, I got to get serious about it. we got a chunk of time. And then we've got, well, no, because it doesn't have to be a chunk of time. He would have been dead a couple, if he had been dead three hours, what? Two, three hours when they found him? Eight, seven. So, well, you still got a chunk of time. you got a couple hours.
1: Yeah. The call, Ken Jr. made the call at 9.08 p.m. And uh, if I look through here, I believe it's relatively early on. And Let me see, I'll read through here. Um, Osceola County's dispatch, the Sheriff's Department received a call. Well, this is kind of strange, and I hadn't noticed this before. The Sheriff's Office received a call from Kathy at 9.38 p.m., a full 30 minutes after Ken Jr. had first called. So there probably was a little more time between when he found the body and when Mark came down there and found the body. And it sounds like it took them a while to get up there.
0: I just would like, so I I think I asked you this, but just to make sure, does it sound like in the report, his, Varney Jr.'s whereabouts are positively accounted for all the way up to the time that he found the body? And that not being at that house?
1: It does sound that way. It does. Uh, His movements are, appear to be that he'd worked at Berkey's Waterfront and from there took their daughter back to Kalkaska. Um, and then went across the street to visit with his ex-mother-in-law, returning back into, leaving leaving the Kelkaska area around 7, 7.15 or so. And then he's making the call at 9.08, um, I think, Kelkaska okay. down to there. They remarked that the roads were bad that night, so the time does seem to fit. The only discrepancies in time, we're talking minutes, not hours.
0: And we think that Arnold was killed before that anyway, right? Before the...
1: Seven. Yeah, what this says is, uh, according to Kathy, she was preparing their evening meal and noticed that Arnold wasn't around the house, and after checking to see if he may be sleeping, did not locate him. She noticed that his hunting-type coat was gone, but his pipe was still there, which meant that he wouldn't be gone long and thought he had gone for a walk. She then noticed that the car was gone, this being approximately 6.15 to 6.30 p.m.
0: Oh, so um, that's Mark when Holmes, she... Huh, go ahead, Mark sorry. Mark
1: Holmes, Arnold's cousin, called several times looking for Arnold as, Kathy, or as as they had planned on going coon hunting that evening. About 8.30 p.m., Kathy became very concerned and advised that she was going to look for Arnold, advising Mark that he had talked of seeing if Varney had moved out. Mark told her to stay home and he would check. Mark came to her home and reported that he had found Arnold dead and to call the police. She called the Sheriff's Department, reporting her husband's shot. The call was later confirmed with the Sheriff's Department being received at 9.38 p.m. They <laughs> then returned to where they were met by the undersigned, being refused access to the property by officers already on the scene.
0: Does it say that she saw him leave the house, Arnold, and what time that was?
1: Um, it says Kathy was re-interviewed at her residence. She advised that the only health problem that her husband was aware of was diabetes, which he had under good control. According to Mrs. Holmes, they attempted to help Varney in many different ways. They let him live at their trailer for over a year without making him pay rent. They never sent him an official notice to leave, but Arnold had talked to him about it. They tried to get him a job, but he was unable to handle one, although he would dig graves in Arnold's place if Arnold was busy providing him if Arnold was busy providing him with spending money. Uh, they asked him to assist them on the addition they were building under their home to help offset what he owed them. He worked only a day and said he was too sick to work. Hmm. They attempted to assist Varney in seeking in securing disability through Social Security, but this had not occurred as of yet. They even provided a Christmas gift to Varney last Christmas and stated that neither had any hard feelings toward one another. Prior to Arnold leaving for his out west trip he talked with Ken Barney about getting out and he said that he would be out by the end of the month September. At that time Barney mentioned that maybe he ought to kill himself no one would miss him according to Mrs. Holmes mm. he also mentioned that maybe he could go live with his son she described Barney as a loner and her knowledge never had a visitor except for his son and she did not know that he was living with the suspect victim and occasionally a brother from the Saginaw area
0: he, said, he told her maybe he'd go live with his son, even knowing that his son was living there?
1: Yeah. I oh. think he's got another. There was another. Oh, okay. There was another kid, though. There was Ken Jr., and then there was uh, a daughter, and then there was another kid in there somewhere. Um, but they weren't actually his kids. They were not biologically his kids. So um, he, but, it, th- that's, but that's all it really says about his, you know, where he'd been that day or where she had been that day.
0: So uh, she doesn't ha- didn't have eyes on on Arnold when he left. She doesn't know. She only knows that she l- yeah. realized he was gone. So she doesn't know yeah. how long he was out of the house.
1: Nope, she doesn't know how long he was out of the house. Yeah. Sounds like she was even home making dinner and didn't realize he wasn't
0: there. Yeah, exactly. Which means it wasn't. See, it doesn't sound to me like. I mean, he let they let him live there that long. Yes, it sounds like it was sort of there was frustration building, and Ar- and um Ken was probably. I mean, with the with the admission that maybe I'll kill myself, you know, maybe he was starting to feel like, well, what am I going to do? And so maybe that's how it ended up that he just got so frustrated after. It just seems like Ken, I mean, that Arnold had to have sort of laid down the law before he walked out that door that day for it to be bad enough for him to kill him.
1: And I guess that would be, you know, maybe that's why Arnold had planned for a brief visit, because he had essentially gone according to this to just confirm that he left. Probably got down there and realized he hadn't left. Mm. And that might be where shit kicked off.
0: Yeah, maybe that's the case. And not only that, but if the girlfriend was living there and he saw all kinds of belongings of other people, you know, that he, I mean, if he went inside the house, we don't know if he even went in, do we? Did, there, did they have any indication that Arnold had even been in the house? No. Uh,
1: you know, I don't, it doesn't mention that, uh, he was shot walking away from the door. Yeah. So I don't, you know, it could very well be, I mean, if this, if this same situation were to have happened now, and from what I know and my involvement with it, the, you know, things would have been checked in the house. DNA would have been collected from the scene, you know, foot impressions. There's just a lot of different things that would have happened now that didn't then. Yeah. Um. Because they're important questions. At the time, they may not have, they may have seemed superficial or benign. But you know, was he in the house? I think that's an important question. If he never went in the house, knocked on the door, turned around and walked away, and got shot in the back, that I
0: mean, yeah, how did that escalate to that? Oh, without exactly, even words, that doesn't make sense. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Huh?
1: And it um, just and it says here, Varney, um, it, it describes. Uh, Varney was found in a head east, feet west, supine position, five feet, five inches south of a large apple tree. He was fully clothed, except for his shoes had been removed and were positioned approximately one foot from the bottom of his feet. A 16-gauge double-barrel hammerless dual-trigger shotgun lay on the left of the south side of the body, with the butt to the west. The barrel ends to the east, towards his head, of course. An approximate three-foot-long, one-inch in diameter apple tree branch lay on top of the body. Tree bark and a small twig was still clenched in the right hand of Varney, and it is believed that the branch was used to push the triggers to discharge the gun. The clothing in the center chest area had been pierced, and dark sooting indicative of gunshot residue on the outer garments was visible. Varney suffered from an apparent mid-chest area wound that had caused blood and fleshy material to splatter about. He lay approximately 120 feet to the northeast of the mobile home sliding glass door in a small clearing beneath the apple tree and was protected from observation by tall grass that abuts the mowed grassy portion beginning approximately 65 feet east of the home. Hmm. There is also some comments in here um, that leading up to, I I believe it was, gosh, I have to look at the date, this occurred on I think it was on Monday Monday the 19th um his brother Ken Sr.'s brother had come to visit him over the weekend from Saginaw and he had asked Ken Sr. what he was going to do he was trying to get Ken to move down to Saginaw with him um and he said that Ken told him he couldn't tell him couldn't tell him about it but he's got it all figured out
0: what
1: yeah yeah Oh. So it sounds like he maybe had been planning this, because Arnold had been gone to Colorado and returned Thursday the fifteenth, I believe. So.
0: So he had an out though. That kind of makes yeah, me he sad. Was, he was
1: provided with an out.
0: It makes me. Was he the type though that wouldn't want to live with someone else? I mean, I've, I have.
1: I don't know. You know. Mentioned possibly living with his son.
0: Yeah. Well, that son. The whole story is coming sadder to me as it, you know, as I hear more about how he said, you know, nobody. But he he said that doesn't make sense with him saying, you know, wondering where I'm going to live. There's no one, you know, who would care or whatever. And he's been offered, you know, these things. I wonder if he was depressed.
1: I would I would think so. like
0: clinically. I mean, you know, like if he was depressed. According
1: to according to the. Um... <laughs> The Ken Jr.'s girlfriend um he had very odd sleep patterns he wherever he fell asleep is where he stayed uh be it the kitchen chair the couch the floor um he was always awake by 5 o'clock in the morning when they got up uh he would oftentimes wake up at 3 in the morning and watch TV and then fall asleep again it sounds like he had quite a bit of of issues
0: mm-hmm.
1: um I think at one point, uh, Ken Jr. remarked that he felt helpless.
0: Oh. But I don't understand the um, the killing of Arnold, though, within that context, even. You know, def- well, it's
1: according to people that knew him, he was evidently very hot-tempered.
0: Okay. Well, maybe, <clears throat> I mean, you've got this guy, if that all is right, he's contemplating hurting himself, why would he take someone else out before he did that? You know, that's another thing that sort of feels weird. But he may, you know, sometimes there might be some contemplation or some depression, but not necessarily i I'm going to do this this time, I'm going to do this then or whatever. And the hot headedness mixed with that. He may have just been feeling a lot of pressure about the moving thing. But again, you've got, he had he got an out, he had an out. He, I don't know. It does, I guess that's why this, this, case is where it is because while there's nothing like you said that shows that anyone else had anything to do with it there's still a lot of weird stuff you know that sort of that makes you think you know are we sure yeah
1: there's a couple of things uh you know here on, on page 28 um george remarks in a supplemental report on november 13th the behavior of kenneth russell varney who was ken jr The behavior of Kenneth Russell Varney cannot be explained as to his responses when questioned regarding this case and his attempt to assist in this investigation concerning the handgun. When originally interviewed, he denied any handguns were in the home. After it was apparent that at some point one was determined to have been there, he provided information that knowing his father, the gun would have been thrown in the swamp. Finally, his last explanation of the gun being placed in the chimney of the mobile home indicating that he saw a ladder prop against the chimney the night he found Arnold. Although his alibi as of this time has not been totally verified, it is consistent with what his fiancée has reported. If his alibi is within the realm of being accurate, it is believed that he would not have been near the scene when Arnold Holmes was shot or his father, who is believed to have committed suicide, shot himself.
0: Hmm. It is worth noting that... Um,
1: the uh, Ken's vehicle, he left the title signed off and keys to the vehicle and the house laying on Ken Jr.'s bed, as if it had been staged there conspicuously for him to find. So it would indicate that Ken had probably planned to do this. Um, huh. And that's what he writes in the notes here. He says, excuse me, he says, due to the fact that the car title was signed off and the keys to the vehicle and trailer were left on his son's bed by Kenneth Sidney Barney, a place they could be readily found believed that Kenneth Sidney Varney had planned his demise. There would be no reason to leave the car title and and keys in this way, for instance, if there was a third party involved who killed both Varney and Holmes. Because of the way the car title and keys were left, this tends to eliminate the possibility that Arnold arrived at the Varney residence and interrupted a third party being responsible for the death of Varney who caused the death of Holmes. So even he had considered what a lot of us were thinking in years past that Arnold maybe came across um, Ken Jr. doing something to his dad and then was shot himself to, to be kept quiet. Um, but he seems to eliminate that theory by saying that, that those things were... Not, and it doesn't necessarily eliminate the theory either. I mean,
0: no, because Ken Jr. could have set that up.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely he could have. Uh, and it's it's difficult because, you know, most, most suicides you'd think somebody would at least leave a, a letter to kind of let people know where their head was at, but he couldn't because he was illiterate mm. uh, even even Ken Jr.'s fiance or girlfriend at the time um, had told Detective Pratt uh, that family members had to restrain him at one point because he was going to get a pistol to shoot her I want to say he had also told um, Ken Jr.'s uh, girlfriend there that he uh, he couldn't tell her why but he had it all figured out and had a smile on his face
0: um, and that was the second a person plan. he told that.
1: Yep. that? Yeah, he had said that to two people in the days immediately leading up to the, the, the murder and the suicide.
0: And she seems credible as far as everything she's mm-hmm. reporting and all of those. So not-
1: far, yeah, George's notes in here don't seem to indicate that he doubts anything she's told him. Um, it does say in here, though, in an interview with his ex-wife, she wasn't surprised that Ken's dad killed himself. She stated that she saw it coming for some time. When she learned of his death, she thought that maybe Ken and his father had gotten into a fight.
0: And that's the reason why this case still is where it is, because even though the report says um, we have no evidence to show anything other than this happened, the water is, like, really muddy in this one. The odds are it's probably, look what it looks like when you w- wade through it, but it's very, it's a very interesting case because of why it's still where it is, and it really does show the very subtleties of what police work is like when you have an odd case like this, and it's not as easy as people think it is. You know, it's a very, there's a lot of intricacies. At this point, I felt as though there wasn't any evidence to suggest that these two deaths were the result of anything other than the ruling of the murder-suicide that had been indicated. But those muddy waters did leave me wanting to hear from Ken son about the gun. It wasn't just one of those unanswered questions that I hate so much, but in this case, it was literally the reason the case could never be closed. That's kind of a big thing, and it's also why all these years, people have started to believe that there may have been more to the case than what they were being told. To see if I could bring some resolution to that one question, I reached out to Ken Sun after a simple online search and found a number associated with his name. I ended up getting his wife, and she was less than delighted about being contacted. In fact, on a scale from delighted to I'm calling the cops on you. Hello. Hello,
1: Jenny.
0: Yes, this is Jenny. Hey,
1: Jenny, this is Trooper West with Michigan State Police. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Hey, I'm just calling you real quick about Sherry Varney. Uh huh. have been in contact with her a little bit today and she just doesn't want to talk to you anymore, okay?
0: Yeah, I sent a five minutes worth of text, so sh- I'm not nope. sure <laughs> what, no, what I, she's...
1: I read, trust me, I read through them all, and I understand I'm just doing my job, letting you know she just doesn't want to talk to you, okay? No problem, not at all. I told her,
0: I just wanted her to inform her that I am doing a podcast on the case, so I kind of felt, you know, I had to let them know since, you know, I let yeah. everyone else ha- I had already talked to, and, and someone in law enforcement, I, so, you know, yeah, I just... No,
1: I, I explained to her, you're a journalist, You're you're trying to do your job. And uh, sometimes you guys
0: got to be pushy. <laughs> well, luckily she got somewhat easy because I wasn't pushy. I just basically told her, you know, here's the deal. Um, but not a problem because I told her in the very last text, I, I won't get back with you if you would like me to interview you. Absolutely no problem because, you know, I just wanted her to be aware that I wasn't interviewing other people. So right. that's it. But I promise I will not at all contact her again. Just like I told her, I wouldn't want to, you know, get yeah. her upset. Oof.
1: Very good. I appreciate your help.
0: No, oh, no problem. I appreciate you calling. It's
1: not a problem. Have a good
0: night. You too. Bye-bye. I'd like to provide some clarity on what she is suggesting is harassment, because it certainly was not. It was, in essence, a five-minute text conversation back and forth, with a chunk of time in the middle where I eventually figured out she had begun conferring with Ken because she then began giving me responses that she said she had gotten directly from him. After I introduced myself, she asked how I got the number. I told her that I had simply typed Ken's name into Google. This was her response. Well, Google is a liar. This has never been Ken's number, but I do know him, so I contacted him about this, and Ken's response to you is this. Well, given no one else was there, there isn't anything to tell you. I don't have anything to say besides to clarify your reference to Ken Sr., and that's not correct. Middle names are different, so no Jr. Sr., Secondly, to text someone about such a horrific event is extremely disrespectful, regardless of how much time has passed. Lastly, I have no interest in reliving it all so you can get a story. Let both families leave it in the past where it belongs. No mystery to solve, and none of us need it all brought back up for your listeners' enjoyment. There are so many unsolved cases out there, why not go help with one of those instead of just digging up old wounds for our families? That is just selfish. Now, I have a snarky inner monologue, and it instantly replied, So, it's selfish in your case, but you think I should saunter on over and bother someone else. All right. I informed her that I had already interviewed some of those other family members, and they did agree to talk about it, so I thought it was only fair to give Ken the opportunity to be interviewed as well. Then I thanked her for her time and tried to disengage, but... The woman continued to respond about how no one else was there when Ken and Arnold died, so to say anything would be speculation, and she would rather not make assumptions about two people that were not able to defend themselves. She said Ken saw no point in hashing it out, and that's when I realized that she had been conferring with him. I honestly wasn't sure who I was speaking to at what points, but this was my response. With regard to Ken, I am most interested in what he did and saw that day. As far as I can see, the question here is not who killed Ken or Arnold. It's why this case is still open, and I'm fairly certain Ken knows the answer to that. You see, there is an element specific to this case that only Ken knows, and that is what I wanted to talk to him about, since he went into that trailer after he found Arnold. That's what I had hoped he could clarify. Then the person answering the text said, Actually, he doesn't, and I was actually there that night, so I know 100% there is nothing to say, nothing to see, either. It was then that I told her I wanted to talk about the gun specifically, the one that ended up in Georgia, where she had a previous address. I said I could see how a 22-year-old could panic and not admit to taking something out of the trailer, but not an adult, particularly when the statute of limitations on any evidence tampering or such would have long since passed. This appears to be when the conversation broke down. You are full of something, and it's not facts. None of the things you are texting are even accurate and now I'm about to report you for harassment, as I have already asked you to leave me alone. Then she said, If you air such lies, there will definitely be legal consequences to you. At this point, my phone rang, I clicked the button, and a female started yelling at me for about 30 seconds, and then hung up abruptly. As I could now see, this was not going to end on a pleasant note. I finished by assuring her that I had legally obtained access to the police report through a FOIA request, which was public information, and that I planned to air its contents as far as the determinations made by the investigator. I further assured her that I would not contact her again, but if she or Ken wished to be interviewed along with the other people familiar with the case, I would be happy to oblige. You know, in reading these reports and interviews
1: with her, I think Kathy's head is the same place now that it was 26 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she's convinced. And, and I, I don't necessarily know why. I guess maybe, you know, there's nobody held accountable. There's no trial. She's never seen anybody perp walked into a courthouse in handcuffs for this. Exactly. And she knew Ken. She knew Ken. Obviously was comfortable enough to have him in her home. The thought that he could have done something to her to, to harm her husband and tear apart her family like that. You either, you either reconcile that and you feel that that intensely raw emotion of betrayal that would come from that, or you just deny it. And I think that's what she's doing.
0: Yeah. And that's, like, so common. For every person that's killed someone, there's someone out there that says, I never thought, I cannot see that person doing it. I mean, yep. every single oh, one. Oh,
1: There's a bushel of them yeah. for every homicide. Yeah. Oh, they were such a nice guy. Yeah. Well, you don't. You, you. And you. You just. You really can never know somebody's heart. You just can't. No. You. You've got to take people for what they tell you because you've got. You've really got nothing else.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. But people that seem to know him. I mean. Even the, the new girlfriend here, the suicide of Kenneth Barney, did not surprise Sherry as it was somewhat expected. In her words, he was crazy. He talked and yelled to people who were not either in his presence or nowhere around. She has seen him open a sliding glass door and begin to talk with imaginary people, inviting them in to have a drink and carry on conversation when nobody was there. It was learned since the incident that on Saturday, October 17th, when his daughter Shauna was there, she asked him what he was going to do, and he responded that he had it all figured out, but he didn't want to say. This was the same response that her now-husband Ken got on the following day, Sunday, when he asked his dad what he was going to do during a discussion with his father, and his father asked him if he had a place to go. Mr. Varney just smiled when he said he had it all figured out. How old was he? Ken? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, He and Arnold were the same age. They were both born in 35, so this would have made him about 58.
0: Gosh, that's not that old. No, no. I mean, because I was thinking Uh, to myself, I wonder if dementia was setting in or something, but that's awfully young.
1: What I think it is is because he was such an intense drunk for most of his life, and he was suddenly without money and funds available to get the alcohol, (gasps) he was probably experiencing DTs and withdrawal.
0: Oh, yes. It was a sudden thing that he wasn't able to have money for the alcohol? Yes. Oh, yeah, shit.
1: That's what it sounds like, yeah.
0: Yeah, that I definitely mean, could never, be
1: it. He was never well off, but it sounds like it, any opportunities that he had for
0: spending money just dried up. The worse he got, the more his health deteriorated. Wow.
1: Now that so, you yeah, say I would that. I'd say that's, that's probably, uh, you know, the, talking to people that aren't there and stuff, he was probably in DTs.
0: I actually know someone that fits that description, or did at one point, and I now I can like see it really clearly, because that's that's a a total personality change too. Sometimes you know that's a, wow.
1: And according to I, I think what, what they seem to indicate in in the follow up interview too, um, is that. Uh, Uh, She, uh, this is Sherry again, Ken's, Ken Jr.'s girlfriend. She advised, she feels that there probably was an argument between Ken's dad and Arnold as his dad is hot-tempered. And she thinks the shooting of Arnold just speeded up Mr. Varney's own death. So it could be that Ken had simply planned on ending his own life, but that contact with Arnold and him being hot-tempered, he gets pissed off and in the heat of the moment he shoots Arnold and that just sped up his own plans to to do what it was that he was doing, and the fact that he would have prepared that car title like that and set that out would indicate, yeah, he was probably planning his demise, as was indicated there.
0: Yeah, and um, he was in that headspace already. He didn't have much to lose if he was going to kill Arnold's
1: death may not have been planned. It may have been just something that occurred because he was in the wrong spot at the wrong time and said the wrong thing.
0: And it could have been, he literally could have been planning his death that day and he, and he, he very well
1: could have been yeah
0: and then arnold came in and he was like fuck it i'm going to i'm i'm going to kill you you know it was a, he had nothing to lose at that well, point yeah, if he was going to kill himself
1: so a lot of times people don't understand why like when we in law enforcement encounter somebody or we're called to deal with somebody that's suicidal and they can't possibly understand why the police would shoot somebody that's suicidal the answer is quite simply If they don't mind taking themselves out, why the hell would they hesitate to take me out?
0: Exactly. That's exactly right. Yep.
1: Yep. And that's probably the situation that Arnold found himself in. There was a guy that was already on the brink. He was Mm -hmm. planning on checking out. He picked the wrong day to piss the guy off, and he punched both of their tickets. Mm -hmm.
0: It, it what's upsetting is that he was leaving when it happened you know he was almost out of there it, you know yeah
1: it, i mean almost almost to the car yep and you know it, it's obviously it's, it's a homicide it's an abrupt ending to somebody's life in an unnatural way it's, it is what it is um i was reading and reading the autopsy report though is uh, arnold's Arnold's descending aorta was 85% blocked, so he probably would not have lived long beyond that anyway.
0: Wow. Wow. So does it look like it's, um, where you saw the case? It doesn't look like they're even doing It's done. I mean, they're not. They're not. No, it's done. Yeah, they're there not going to. No
1: activity in this case from the last time, uh, December 1992. From that point up until May 2011, there was nothing. I think George is confident that there's nobody out there that's gotten away with anything.
0: Yeah. So, what do I think? Stay tuned.